Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello and welcome to Conversations by Eclectic Spacewalk. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay, and today I'm joined by Michael Cholby, Professor of Philosophy at Cal Poly Pomona, whose research is principally in ethics with particular emphasis on suicide, grief, and punishment. Welcome to Conversations, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. Right, thank you so much. So let's jump right in. A lot to talk about. Um, first and foremost, where were you born? I was born in Portland, Oregon. Um, my uh, father ended up there uh, after the Second World War. He was a uh, World War II veteran okay. and was uh, stationed in Vancouver, Washington. And... Uh, so he was from New York City. He found the city to his liking and right. uh, stayed um, at a time when Portland was, um, you know, really just kind of a, a sort of large, small town sure. in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and so I grew up there. I was born there and then grew up in some areas east of the city, uh, first in a rural area and then, I suppose, more in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, and I, I guess the sort of most interesting aspect of, of my background is that my both of my parents had been married previously and had children in their previous marriages, uh, six altogether. And I'm the only child uh, of my parents, but oh, I like wow. to joke that I have, I have three siblings altogether because I have six half-siblings, and if you should do the math, right, that's three. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in any case, uh, I'm the youngest of, of I guess, seven, and... Uh, uh, in some respects, I suppose, you know, uh, I was the only person to kind of go the more traditional, you know, sort of college route. Oh, I see. So, um, okay, so Portland, Oregon, and then you said your parent, your dad was, mm -hmm. is in World War II. We actually just recently watched Band of Brothers. Uh -huh, and yeah. And then got that whole resurgence of, you know, nostalgia, yeah. patriotism. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, I watched with my, my, my own children uh, Saving Private Ryan a couple oh, of years yeah. back, which... Um, you know, the idea that my father was at D-Day and was, you know, sort of involved in the kind of combat shown in that movie at the beginning uh, still strikes me as, um, kind of, I feel a sense of disbelief. Uh, absurdity, <laughs> uh, non-belief, all uh, of them. Uh, I mean, we yeah. can talk about this later, of course, but one of the things that, uh, uh, one of the themes, I suppose, of my work is, you know, the contingency of our existence. And it doesn't take a lot for me to imagine that a few uh, uh different trajectories for some from some German machine guns and I wouldn't exist oh my gosh so, yeah. uh, it's often quite striking to me how those uh, 
contingent facts make a big difference to how your how your world goes or whether you even get a world oh so 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 true and one of the things about like easy company for band of brothers was that you know dick winters the lieutenant that was in charge for the entire war well his commanding officer went down in the plane mm -hmm. just going over and they it's like they trained for two years right. it with them and then they didn't even get to jump and it's like wow <laughs> yeah it's coincidence any of us ever exist at all so yeah, yeah right um, that that as well. Okay, so so when you were young, so take us back into Oregon. Um, you're growing up, and then obviously you have that interesting di family dynamic. What was kind of your more um, influ early childhood influences? Was it thinkers, doers? Um, well, it's funny. I was reflecting on this with my own children. I don't think that my younger self could have imagined probably um, me having the professional life that I've got now because I just really didn't know about it, honestly. Right. Um, I think when I was young, I, I probably had some of the ambitions that, you know, uh, elementary age boys do. I think I probably wanted to be an athlete. Okay. Um, um, and uh, later on, that kind of evolved a little bit. So when I got to high school and then as I went uh, off to college, I uh, was thinking that probably the, the best opportunity I could make for myself would be uh, to be a sports writer. Okay. You know, to be a sports journalist. Um, and I, you know sort of dabbled in that a little mm -hmm, bit, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, you know, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad I didn't. Uh, the journalism business has only become increasingly difficult. That's where uh, I got my past, yeah, sports over journalism. Past 20 or so years. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm in many respects glad I didn't pursue that path. Uh, it did have certain benefits to me. I mean, when you had to, as I had to for a little while, you know, produce you know, capsule uh, stories about, you know, high school or college sporting events, you had to write yeah. Uh, you had to produce, you had to be on deadline, sure. um, which has proven to be, um, I think, valuable to me in, in, my, philosophy, in my philosophy career um, in that, you know, I think I uh, long ago lost my ability to make excuses for not writing. Oh, sure. I think people are good at making excuses for not oh, writing. Oh, my, my, myself so, included. <laughs> uh, I think, I, I, think I, uh, I had that drilled out of me. So that was, yeah. a, that was a benefit. Um, but, you know, I... Again, as I said, I came from a family that really didn't have, uh, you know, much of a background in higher education. Sure. So, you know, the idea of going to college, I think, was a fairly revolutionary thing uh, for someone like me, uh, much less that you would sort of, you know, find your find your professional home at university. Sure. Um, so I think my younger self would be pretty surprised. Right, right. And then so <laughs> were you were you reading just a lot of books or were you like just involved in things? Like how did, how did that? Well, you know, when I was really young, I, as I said, I grew up in a rural area. Uh -huh. And, uh, so I think I had a childhood that is probably, um, becoming rarer now. Sure. You know, I was outside a lot. We, uh, we, you know, we climbed trees and played basketball and, got dirty you, know, uh, kids. <laughs> you know, waded into the river and, you know, got dirty and <laughs> did those things that, that, uh, kids in rural areas, I suppose probably still do. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like reading, I mean, I was a reader, but um, I think one of the things to say probably that did have an influence on me was just that I really liked reading nonfiction. Not that I didn't like reading fiction, but I really liked, uh, you know, reading histories and biographies mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, you know, I remember reading a lot of biographies of like athletes and political leaders and stuff like that, um, which... You know, I think that probably was good practice for becoming a philosopher. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, uh, you're but more in than the that, minds. you know, it kind of put me in the mindset of. And I think I've always been interested in the fact that you know we collectively have pasts, and we as in, as individuals have pasts. Uh, as we were kind of joking a while back, you know, it's kind of a kind of a miracle that any one of us in particular happens to come to exist. Sure. And uh, so I think that it gave me a very um, 
acute sense of, you know, again, kind of the, the contingency of, of any of our existences and the way in which, you know, events can unfold one way rather than another. And mm-hmm. uh, over time, um, the effects of, of particular events or particular choices, you know, build and concatenate. And, you know, those are the things that explain why we're here now. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then so. did you have it? Uh, so just to kind of touch in and we'll, we'll touch more on his research and, and the uh broad topics of death and suicide later but did you have any of those kind of things happen to you when when you were a child like any kind of things around like even grandparents I think in my case you know being the youngest of seven my parents were on the older side mm-hmm. when I was born and so um, I only really knew one of my grandparents she died when I was in high school um, so I didn't have a great deal of experience with death but what I did think I, what I do think I got was, you know, again, the sense that your own biography reaches well into the past, you know, and um, that, you know, your past can in a certain sense be, uh, you know, more or less accessible to you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, not to say that my past was a mystery, but, you know, um, it had a sort of more mythic feel to me because, you know, both of my father's parents died in the middle of the 20th century. Right. Um, my mother's father died in, the, I believe, the 1960s before I was born. Mm-hmm. So I think it gave me a sense that there are um, puzzles about sort of where we come from. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and, and, and how to figure that out is kind yeah, of... Yeah, how to figure that out. Um, and again, that sort of deep sense that, you know, the past sort of bears down on you uh, even when... Uh, even when you don't realize it. Oh, to, uh, yeah, so. absolutely. And I mean, well, it's such a visceral part too. If you have families that like, yeah. are close, like you said, in a rural area. So my when my grandmother uh, or my mom's side of the family is kind of from that in the mm-hmm. rural area, and it's just kind of you're all you're to all the way around each other all the time, you know. And then yeah. so if someone passes, then it's a, it's just a part yeah. of the thing as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so moving on, like, so you you go to high school, um, and then did you start to say, hey? this higher education is a little bit more, or like, I want to continue this, or did you really get it in, in college and then wanting to continue? Um, well, I, I think that what I noticed was just how comfortable I felt, I felt in educational environments mm-hmm. and how uh, normal it felt to be in educational environments. But I think, you know, for the most part, you know, I was a strong student, you know, pretty much from, from the time I entered elementary school. So mm-hmm. uh, schools felt um, normal. Uh, they felt like comfortable places to be. Um, I don't think I ever really decided in some, uh, you know, sort of single decision mm-hmm. or single fell swoop to, to be an academic. Um, I think when I was an undergraduate, uh, I just kept studying things and people sort of gave me encouragement and said I was doing pretty well. And I just kind of did the next thing, whatever that next thing was, you mm-hmm. know, uh, deciding on a major or going to graduate school or whatever it was. And I would say, uh, strange as though it sounds, I kind of just ended up <laughs> doing yeah, this. Doing I, it yeah. wasn't there was there wasn't there was a kind of moment where I kind of resolved to do it. Right, <laughs> it's sort of like, well, you know, things are going fine, and you know, maybe I can go to graduate school. Well, graduate school is going fine, and you know, maybe I'll write a dissertation. Yeah. Dissertation seems okay, and people say maybe I can get a job in this field. So, um, I won't want to say I stumbled into it, but there wasn't a kind of. Uh, a story where, you know, at some point I was um, 
uh, sort of fully committed yeah, like to an aha academic career. So it wasn't an aha yeah, moment. Yeah. It was more like, yeah, you know, things are going okay, and I don't see better alternatives. So let's just keep doing. Let's this. just keep doing. This. Yeah. <laughs> so, so remind us. So you went to undergrad, then grad school, and then PhD. Where did you have to go geographically different? Uh, like, did you move around? Yeah. So uh, I was an undergraduate at, at, at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. which you know I think is uh, considered rightfully, you know, a really good model of, of the liberal arts college. Um, it's kind of funny, actually, uh, the, the number of prominent philosophers who went to Swarthmore is really pretty staggering. Um, oh, okay. You know, Elizabeth Anderson and David Lewis and a whole bunch David of other Lewis, people okay. that okay. I mean, probably uh, people in philosophy know about. Um, but uh, it's a great place to go to become a future academic because the size of the institution being small, you get a lot of feedback and a lot sure. of attention um, on your own thinking and you're given uh, your autonomy, I think, is respected. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, you know, in terms of going to graduate school, I think, again, I wasn't necessarily someone who um, had my heart set exactly on, you know, sort of a, a life in, in uh, the academic world, but it seemed worth trying out. Sure. And uh, so I ended up in, in Virginia, um, mostly, I think, because uh, they seemed to want me the most, which uh, has been an important lesson to me. It's always nice. <laughs> well, you know, I think... Um, it's important that you go someplace where, uh, again, kind of again echoing my experience at Swarthmore, where people uh, want you to be there sure. and they're giving you resources and attention. Um, and, and UVA was was pretty enthusiastic about having me. Um, and I think also it was a place where, um, unlike some philosophy PhD programs, uh, it didn't necessarily have its reputation tied to one particular area of philosophy. I had pretty broad interests. I thought I might work in history of philosophy. I thought I might work in you know, maybe philosophy of science or something like that. So um, uh, it actually didn't really, you know, being an ethicist didn't really uh, register, I think, very strongly with me when I went to graduate school. So it was something, again, that just kind of worked yeah, out. Yeah, and so. again, you know, I think it was a good decision because, you know, it was a place where you had strong faculty in a lot of different areas. So I, I think I needed to, um, you know, explore the different areas of, of the field, learn more about them, see what was interesting to me, see what I was good at. Sure. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I dare say, I guess it turned out I was, I was okay at the ethics stuff. So that's what <laughs> happened. Sure. Um, but you know, uh, I, I, feel a little strange about, you know, my own um, academic biography, because in some ways it's opposite of what I tell students. You know, you should have a plan and you should think it through and, you know, be very deliberate about things. And, and I don't think I was careless of exactly about my academic career, but I also don't think I was um, sort of hyperactive. No, yeah, but you there's know, an opportunist kind of yeah, middle ground yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. Opportunistic uh, mentality. You know, just like whenever it comes, hey. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, but, you know, uh, sometimes if you just make enough good choices in a row sure you'll end up in, in a good place yeah that energy will then <laughs> yeah catch on so then so then take us after you get your phd and then uh when do you start at cal poly pomona well i actually had um a previous tenure track job in new york city okay. uh, at brooklyn college for three years got it um and i left there in 2003 and i came to cal poly in the fall of 2003 okay so yeah it's been Quite a quite a ride. Sixteen years. Sixteen years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then you mentioned that you're also. We'll just kind of update people. This semester, upcoming semester, is going to be your last. It will be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to. uh, I'm going to be an immigrant. Uh, (laughs) So I'm going to be accepting a position at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, effective in January. Right. Um, So, um, change in in a lot of respects. Different kind of institution. More um, more research oriented. 
Um, obviously a lot older. I mean, you know, Cal Poly is a lot, a lot older. 1950s uh, sort of era university in Edinburgh, founded 1583. Yeah. So a lot older. Um, and that's how we originally got uh, the discourse started on Twitter yeah, because you yeah. mentioned that. And I was like, man, like to go to the University <laughs> of Edinburgh, where like I think David Hume and like all the yeah, great, the, you know, it's, it's definitely was a, a center for uh, Scottish Enlightenment philosophy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it's something of a compliment that, you know, I have a, a job that David Hume couldn't get. Yay. So since he applied to, to, to teach at Edinburgh and, and right. they turned him down. Yeah. So, um, but it'll be, it'll be an interesting adventure, uh, you know, moving halfway across the world. Um, and obviously it's an interesting time to be moving to Scotland. Yeah. Uh, since um, Brexit stuff. Brexit yeah. and, and a kind of burgeoning um, independence movement there. Sure. Uh, so, um, so yeah. what, I mean, I broad swaths, what are you most looking forward to? Is it the research you said that you are, have a little bit more inclination for that at this position? Or um, well, just change I, the scenery. Like, is that kind of what you need maybe? Or I think, I think the best way to say it is that I think it will allow me to do a lot of the things that I've been doing at Cal Poly, but with a higher level of visibility. Got it. Um, Edinburgh uh, sort of has a more, uh, international brand absolutely than, than um, Cal Poly Pomona I've had a great time being at Cal Poly it's been a really um, fruitful and uh, critical stage of my career um, and I've accomplished a lot during the time I've been there very proud mm -hmm. of what I've done there uh, so I'm not leaving there um, feeling any great sense of regret but um, you know sort of looking maybe for um, a way to uh, make the things I'm doing more visible more impactful sure um identify uh, partners, you know, that uh, can can leverage what I'm doing in a way that gives it more uh, impact in the world. All right. So, well, you heard it here. Yeah. Go, yeah. go, go and yeah. do some collaboration yeah. with Michael at Edinburgh. Yeah. University of Edinburgh. PhD students. Yeah, 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 of course. So, yeah, yeah. You can write uh, nice articles like me, but, you know, PhD students are what we need. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the, so, so funny that um, you actually had a Reddit AMA, which mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Just enough that... You, the fact that you even had that is, pre, is pretty cool. But in, in one of those, I want to do a cool little, um, not thought experiment, but exercise, if you will. So you answer, so you got to ask, how would you explain what philosophy is to a five-year-old? And then you answered, quote, asking questions that human beings need to ask in order to grasp being human. And I thought that was very, you know, uh, interesting like little tidbit for a five-year-old to get. But what I want to know, um, or is, is, kind of the interesting thing of the progression of knowledge and that how would you change that answer for a tween or a high school graduate or even for your grandmother mm -hmm. or even again like for a philosophy undergrad and then someone who's you know maybe writing their dissertation right. like again you don't have to yeah. exactly answer each time but like how would you you know how would you go I through I don't think the answer would fundamentally change no, I, no, I no. think that the the Problems or the examples of problems that I might give to different mm -hmm. uh, people or to different age groups to motivate that answer or mm -hmm. illustrate that answer might change. Um, you know, I think I, I share the view, which I, I think is you know pretty common among humanistically oriented philosophers, that I think almost everyone is a philosopher at some level. Uh, I think people uh, engage philosophical questions all the time. They don't know that they're doing that, right? They sort of Very don't true. recognize them as philosophical questions. Um, I think that the difference between, you know, someone like myself, a, a so-called academic philosopher, and sort of everyone else is not um, is not the fact that we engage philosophical questions, because I think both groups do. Uh, I just engage them differently, mm -hmm. right, with a sort of level of background and so forth that, that other people 
you know, don't have. And then, you know, I'm supposed to kind of keep the conversation around the issues going by being a, a researcher too. Right. Um, but, you know, I think if when people reflect on their own lives, I mean, you know, what are the philosophical questions that, you know, young children have? Well, you know, I don't know, but I, I gather that there are going to be things that arise often like from interactions with, uh, uh, you know, with, with other people and things in their environment, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've certainly talked to young children that are puzzled about, for example, you know, how are we different from our pets, right? You know, how is their experience of the world different from ours? You sure. know, um, when, that, when your dog barks, is that is that language exactly? You know, or what? You know, why why are our communicative abilities different from from an animals? Or, you know, you can get young children uh, are talking. I think about um, you know very sort of basic questions in kind of quotidian social mm-hmm. ethics. You know, what what makes a good friend? Sure. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, or what makes a good parent or a good sibling? Um, and I think as time goes on, you know, uh, I think philosophy often is the, uh, I think, um, shows up in people's consciousness at sort of transition points in life. You know, um, I think a lot of adolescents are attracted to philosophical questions because they feel a sense of, a, of, uh, change going on in their lives, changes in responsibilities and expectations and, you know, changes in the kinds of relationships that they can have with other people. Um, I think, you know, young adults uh, have some of the same sorts of questions. Uh, you know, I think in our society, you know, the predominant model is, you know, that nowadays is that people will, uh, you know, uh, try to leave the nest, get, get some education, get some training, you know, try to pursue a career of some sort, achieve something like, you know, economic independence. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that tends to happen to people in uh, sort of early adulthood is they start asking themselves after they've invested in all of that, why are they doing all of exactly. that? You know, <laughs> you know, like what, what is the, what is the purpose of it? Um, I think as we age, you know, uh, um, other kinds of philosophical questions move to the forefront and other kinds of questions uh, recede. So I don't think we ever leave the questions behind. I think they just tend to take different kinds of forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there, you know, my experience, you know, I've tried to be as um, public as I can be, you know, with my own um, philosophical energies and efforts. And people are receptive to it, right? I mean, I think people are really thirsty in every society, but especially in ours, for philosophy. Yeah. They just don't know that they are, right? They don't know that there are these traditions and these texts and people like me necessarily uh, that, that can help them um, approach some yeah. of these questions that trouble them. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I think everybody is, has a sort of philosophical temperament if you give them a chance to, to, to nurture it and notice it. And I think the role of academic philosophy is often just to sort of be the uh, sort of most uh, intricate or, or I guess sort of formalized yeah. uh, version of the conversations that I think people have, you know, at their kitchen tables or with themselves on the bus or with their therapists or with well, their friends at the bar. Or, yeah, and I think I, there's it's an interesting thing because you, you would... I, from my experiences to being like a journalist and a locations manager and production, I just have gotten very lucky to be able to talk to a vast swath of society. Mm-hmm. So anywhere from janitors all the way up to sea yeah. level suites. But each person is just a normal human being going throughout his motions and figuring things out. And one of the things that we or I have at least connected with people sorely uh, in conversations of rapport is not obviously water cooler talk. What's the weather like is cool, but really getting into the nitty gritty of like, Mm -hmm. hey, like. What, what do you, th- what are you trying to do in the morning? Why are yeah. you, why are you getting up in the morning? Like, <laughs> right. what are you trying yeah. to do? And so those kind of things immediately become 
like almost like a, a, um, a green light for people to be like, okay, well, I can start right. thinking about this or I can have premonitions or thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I think that, that philosophy gives people, well, it honors, I think, their, their autonomy as people mm -hmm. um, and uh, gives them a chance to empower themselves. I mean, I think that at its best, you know, philosophy can be a really powerful source of human solidarity, mm, right? Because yes. I think that the things that we, we try to engage as philosophers or try to engage when we're being philosophical are things that mostly we share, right? Mm -hmm. um, not everyone, right? And, and, and the problems take different forms. You know, the problem of, of uh, I don't know, um, a gay or lesbian person coming out is not the same quite as, you know, um, you know, changing your, your political views or something right. like that. But it's in the same family, you know, right. questions about, you know, identity and your place in the world and so on. So I think, you know, what I hope that philosophy can give people is not necessarily or always good answers to their questions. Sometimes I think maybe the good answers are kind of elusive. Right. Uh, but what I think it can do is it can make them... Um, feel that the problems are not theirs alone, right? Mm. Um, that we're, we're working through kind of the model of, of human existence together and that there is a long tradition, right, of, of people trying to figure these things out who, you know, people who bother to, to put pen to paper. Right, 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 right. right. The, the canonical philosophers. Um, you know, most philosophy, again, you know, I think is, is done by, by sort of non-academics, again, you know, kind of uh, as they're in the shower or as they're driving. The <laughs> and so it does end up on paper, um, which is kind of an, uh, uh, unfortunate. But, you know, I think it can be a really powerful source, again, of, of alleviating our sense that we're, um, that we're alone in the world or uh, that our problems are uh, unique to ourselves. All right. Well, philosophize, talk to people, right, and keep yeah, philosophizing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, in, in that regard, too, I think you you hit on an interesting paradox with with some things of like knowledge and just academia of trying to get out like information in general. And so, one of the things like language is is so funny because it's like when you were talking about. Um, that people are doing it uh, at the in their car, at like, but but they just maybe not know the moniker of like, hey, this is Kantian ethics, or this sure, is sure. you know labeling and sure. stuff. And an academic maybe just can put that like you know paste it note that little mm -hmm. p touch you know right there. Hey, this is this you know kind of deal. And yeah, most I people think just that, don't that, know. that's flattering to people. I mean, I've I've found you know that um, students, in my experience, when you tell them that a certain insight of theirs or a certain idea of theirs. You know, has its uh, uh, has a background in, or, or sort yeah. of resonates with you know views of Plato or you know whatever great philosopher it is. Uh, it's very flattering, right? Because I think it sort of suggests, so you know, uh, I can discover things. Just right? like you, you said, know, I'm, not, I'm not uh, yeah. I'm not completely powerless or helpless in the face of whatever uh, problem or challenge I might be facing. Um, I mean, that's. Of course, to point out that originality is a very short supply of philosophy. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to be original. Um, but I also think it's a good thing to discover that you're not. Right. right? Um, and even now, you know, I don't know, 20 or more years into my own career, it's, it's I think, still very kind of thrilling, right, when, you know, you read another philosopher, uh, contemporary or, or uh, canonical, and you see them expressing, you know, thoughts or ideas that are similar to ones you've had yourself, right? Oh, because that was my rabbit kind of, hole and all There's this, this kind yeah. of... Uh, a sense of, you know, oh, there, there is something, you know, uh, uh, credible, right? Uh, intelligible, coherent about my own way of seeing things. And somebody else has been there, you know, seeing before. Seeing it as well, yeah. Um, 
And again, I think just a sense of alleviating uh, our feeling that we're uh, kind of working our way through through uh, through human existence on our own. Uh, that's one of the really powerful things, you know, I think philosophy can do for people. Um, I think, you know, uh, I've had the good fortune of, of seeing at my current institution at Cal Poly, you know, students um, really forming communities, you know, that are grounded, I think, in, in sharing a kind of um, philosophical temperament. Right, right. Wanting to talk to one another about ideas. Right, 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 right. And ideas. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a great. Well, I mean, even, but some of these ideas, like you mentioned, are thousands of years old. I mean, Aristotelian philosophy of, hey, the only thing I know is I know nothing. You know, mm-hmm. I'm no one's teacher, really. But <laughs> at the same time, you're Aristotle. Like, what? But And then the second thing, <laughs> exactly, you know, but the second thing is, as well is uh, kind of want to hark on is, uh, philosophia is actually not wisdom in per se, but again, the love of wisdom, yeah. you know, and actually trying to the journey per se, not exactly. Well, I mean, there's different interpretations of language, et cetera, but like not exactly ever attaining knowledge or wisdom or whatever, but always striving to do it. And that's, that goes into the myth of Sisyphus, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, yeah, <laughs> sorry, there's no. always a question I think of, of, uh, why should I have a job, which broadly yeah. speaking, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. what is it that I purportedly know that um, I suppose, you know, the, the proverbial person on the street doesn't know? And it's not, I think, you know, sort of the right answers to things. I think it's knowing traditions, mm-hmm. you know, knowing the ways in which, you know, different philo- uh, philosophical schools of thought, different philosophers have engaged with each other, what strengths and weaknesses they've seen in each other's points of view. Um, so it's, you know, I, uh, there's a, a phrase that I've heard uh, people use that I think is very helpful that, that philosophers are kind of like intellectual cartographers. Oh, yes, right? yes, yes, you yes. Know, sort of you, you figure out what the lay of the land looks like. Uh, you don't necessarily know what the best place to be on the map is, <laughs> but you know what's on the map and right. you know how to get from one point to another. Um, I think that's an apt analogy. Right. But then if I were to take you and, and push you on that, is there ever a time that we'll get to the satellite then view? Because then it's like, you know... I think some of my views are right. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. Um, well, I mean, they can be proved over time and obviously uh, more more so than... Episode. But like the cartographer, I like that because you're you're in it. You're, you're trying to figure it out. Right. And I think the other thing that, you know, I like also about the cartography uh, analogy is that, you know, you can do a map at different levels of detail, right? I can right. map, yes, you know, yes, yes, yes. the galaxy or I can map, you know... The space outside this building. Mm-hmm. And I think philosophers, at their best, work above it, sort of above and below. Right? They work both at very high levels of abstraction sometimes, but also work down at very close levels of detail. But I think what we get over philosophy is we get uh, over time is a better sense of the strengths and weaknesses of different views. Yes. Um, I also think there's. In some areas of philosophy, I can't speak to all of them, but at least in the areas that I know well, I think there is you know, over time, some convergence on, again, what the strengths and weaknesses of different views are. Um, I think some views become view, uh, seen as more credible. Some views mm-hmm. become seen as less credible, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't mean we exactly refute the less credible reviews uh, uh, views or we, we demonstrate, you know, beyond any doubt, you know, the more credible ones. But I think that, you know, over time, we, we sift through them. Right. We, it's more like we just kind of get attracted to the better ideas over time. I mean, not necessarily I hope better. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hope, hope so. Yeah, as well. But I think we sift through them and we and we sort of have a sense of, of uh, which views sort of are more meritorious, mm-hmm. which, of course, you know, I don't think that uh, 
I don't think philosophy is supplied with lots and lots of knockdown arguments that, you know, prove things beyond the pale. Um, But I think we do have a sense of of better and worse views over time. I also think we, we, um, over time, map out more of the more of the logical possibilities. Right. Right. We we figure out more of which views are available to us. Um, And, you know, so in ethics, you know, there are people who you know, uh, begin with certain historical figures, say someone like Kant, but then they develop that thought and modify it and, you know, perhaps um, uh, delete certain things sure, that, sure. you know, maybe Kant Take himself helped. Yeah. So uh, I think that we, we we get a greater diversity of views. We sort of see what the points of contact are among dis- different views. I think we have a more crystalline sense of where our disagreements reside. Mm-hmm. Okay, Michael. And then uh, moving forward to through some types of language with philosophy and, and talking with this is we, we got connected on Twitter and um, it's really interesting to see that there's different platform or different uh, groups that are using that platform, philosophy, Twitter, SciComm, econ, Twitter. So what, what has that been to basically maybe democratize the message, if you will, of some of the expertise of philosophy that we were just talking about from academics to, to people who are just interested or layman's, you know, like, Boy, it's a troubled subject. <laughs> um, I don't think philosophy has done well on social media, uh, which doesn't mean that there aren't maybe a few people who do it well. But I don't think it's a medium that's especially well suited mm-hmm. uh, to philosophic exchange. And so I actually tend not to do philosophy on Twitter. Uh, I publicize, you know, what I'm doing and, and in some cases maybe reach out to others about different kinds of collaborations or uh, just sort of share, you know, items that I think are of interest. Mm-hmm. But I don't tend to actually try to philosophize on social media. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not an expert kind of on the, the, the sort of uh, technical ecology of social media, I guess sure. you could say. But it does feel to me as if, um, you know, in the Republic, you know, Plato uh, is very skeptical about artists, you know, and, and the ways in which they uh, uh, are at one remove from reality. He thinks that they just sort of reproduce things. And mm-hmm. I don't share that view, but I think there's something he's right about, which is that um, I think philosophy has done best face to face. And I think a lot of that is because as embodied creatures, I think when we, when we interact together in the same space, mm-hmm. not the same virtual space, same space, uh, I think we are more sympathetic to one another. And I think we have a better sense of, of uh, discursive dynamics. We know sure. sort of uh, what to say, what not to say. Um, I've rarely seen, uh, during the time social media has been prominent in, in academia, what's that, maybe 10, 12 years yeah. now, um, I've rarely seen a sort of lot of uh, kind of lightning bolt moments of philosophical insight on, on traditional social media. The blogs can be uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that to be uh, a little bit ponderous for my own tastes. But um, I think that uh, it's not a great medium, right? right? I think for understanding one another. It's got all of the features that I think tend to help us misunderstand. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so... Uh, when I think about teaching, you know, students, you know, teaching philosophy students, well, what am I trying to teach them or what am I trying to engender in them? Right. Well, I'm trying to engender in them patience. I'm trying to engender in them a kind of guarded skepticism toward what they hear, but also a kind of charity toward what they hear. Um, and so I think all of the kinds of intellectual virtues that I think we're trying to instill in students, not just in philosophy, but I think kind of in academic life in general, they're very hard to cultivate. 
yeah. on Twitter or on social media. No, I, I, the, 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 it's the least hospitable environment that I can think of for those kinds of uh, aptitudes and attitudes. Yeah, I think it really harkens back to the medium as the message of Marshall McLuhan. Like, yeah, you know, it, yeah. it really depends on what you're trying to do. If you can make little, you know, bits, you know, of yeah. 280 characters, and you want to say something, okay, that's cool. Or you want to thread things together. That's what I've been kind of working on in my own stuff. But then, as you said, like. Even going up to blogs and or articles, and then going up to peer reviewed, and then going up to books. I mean, there's a big progression of things, and that's only in print. We're yeah. not even talking about right. these mediums right. like talking, video. Yeah, I would say you know, in the case of something like like Twitter, and to a lesser extent, you know, Facebook. Um, you know, it seems to me that a lot of of the environment there is uh, sort of you know intellectual one liners. Mm, yes, you know, I like and, that. and that's mm. fine, right? Like, I have no problem. Yeah, with that. it has like, a some place. Some of them are kind of entertaining. And, <laughs> But I think they're kind of designed or intended to to put an end, right, to a kind of conversation. And I don't see as much on social media that really is aimed at inviting a conversation and and inviting a kind of careful, slow, I mean, I think that's the other thing to say, right, it's mediums that that value speed, right? uh, I don't think there are many conversations that are designed to invite slow, deliberate, um, conversations. self-skeptical reactions, right? right? I think one of the things that that philosophy should train you to be is to be a little bit skeptical about your own patterns of thought. Yeah, baloney detection kit, Carl Sagan. Yeah, baloney detection kit. So, um, you know, as I said, I just don't think that they're particularly good for the kinds of intellectual virtues that um, philosophy at its best uh, manifests. Now, as far as peer review research goes, I mean, I think the electronic revolution has been very good, right? In right. the sense that it sort of puts a lot of this information at people's disposal. Um, that system is, as a system of uh, labor and exchange, completely broken. Yeah, I was uh, uh, on the other side of that uh, for access. Which, but. which you know, uh, it's increased access, but it involves huge amounts of, of uncompensated labor and sure. a business model that, uh, you know, the critics, I, I agree essentially with the critics that, that it amounts to kind of extraction of labor uh, without compensation to and just, people like me. Yeah, and just like just as broad strokes is is basically there's an issue of in the in scientific journals is that peer review um, basically when you go through that process you have an increased thing of legitimacy, everything's yeah. great, but at the same time a lot of that funding or whatever is coming through taxpayer dollars, possibly, sure, sure, et cetera. Sure. And then that access is not even open. So maybe not in philosophy, but just in the sense, the grand thing of academia and peer reviewed is just, it's, it's, it's broken, like you said. Well, right. I mean, I think one kind of blunt way to put it, right, yeah. to invoke, you know, a, a phrase from, from J.S. Mill, right, is that, you know, you can't really have a marketplace of ideas if you have some people trying to monopolize the marketplace, <laughs> right, or trying to make money off of it, right? right, which, you know, commercial publishers, that's that's their business model, yeah. um, and they're kind of, you know, sort of rent-seeking on um, the, uh, the production of peer-reviewed research. Yeah. But again, I, I, you know, I... I I'm very glad to do peer review because I learn a lot from it and it's an important obligation in the field and it's been very good for me. I mean, without it, you know, I suspect I would not have had <laughs> as anywhere uh, near as successful or as high profile a career as I've had. Uh, but the business model definitely leaves a lot to be desired. So. Yeah, and I think we'll, we'll start that after our break, uh, the kind of getting into your peer-reviewed research, because I mean, 60, 60 articles isn't bad there, you know. <laughs> but um, so let's let's. I haven't t- read them all. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's 
go back a little bit. So you're leaving Cal Poly Pomona, yeah. but also um, you're leaving a couple other things that kind of, or one at least is uh, you're the director of the California Center of Ethics mm-hmm. and Policy. So that has a distinctive mission for an academic ethics center to investigate ethics and policy issues by focusing on how those issues play out in our California communities and statewide. So first, I want to obviously talk about that more, like mm-hmm. what it is, but then also just the if, things of practical ethics. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, it's one thing to have an association of ethics, but then it's another thing to have it specifically in California working on specific things that are yeah. dealing with California. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit more about that as well. Sure. So... Um, you know, if you look around the academic landscape, um, it seems like almost every university has an ethics center or a policy center or something that looks a little like that. Um, and I think what inspired uh, the center at Cal Poly, the California Center for Ethics and Policy, is the sense that most of these academic ethics or policy centers, their location doesn't really matter to their mission. They can basically be anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the things that are done at an academic ethics center, maybe in, you know, Belgium, are pretty similar to what are done at an academic ethics center in Sao Paulo or in Washington, D.C. Sure. And that's fine, right? Like, that's an okay model. I don't have, uh, I don't, don't mean to take issue with it. But I think at an institution like Cal Poly, which, you know, is a public institution in California, Uh, We wanted something that would, for one thing, mark us off as distinctive, but also uh, echo our location and echo our mission. Um, And California is an interesting place, right? I mean, so many of the things, so many of the challenges that I think uh, nations uh, throughout the world, not just the United States, face right now, they are problems or questions that are arising in California first, right? So... um, You know, there's, of course, a national conversation going on around immigration. Um, But, of course, you know, we in California have been uh, engaging with the question of immigration essentially forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of built into the state's (laughs) DNA. Um, uh, Or, you know, things like uh, uh, natural resource uh, uh, constraints, water, um, you know, real estate, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So the state, I think, has long been um, for both reasons having to do with culture, but also just sort of reasons having to do with sort of matters of fact, I think a bit ahead, right, of the rest of the world and having to grapple with a lot of these questions. It's the first place to have, you know, within the United States to have a serious uh, set of laws about environmental protection, you know, one of the first states to give women a vote, one of the first states to institute um, a proposition or referendum process. Mm -hmm. So Cannabis. Yeah, so many things, uh, so many things where I think the state has been out front in part because it had to be up front, right? It faced the issues first. Um, and it's also a place where I think if you kind of forecast what um, the United States and different parts of the world are going to look like in a generation or two, right. it's going to look like California, right? Um, culturally and linguistically diverse, um, but with certain kinds of uh, problems stemming from kinds of demographic patterns. You know, it's a state where you have uh, relatively affluent uh, urban areas, less affluent rural areas that are um, have their own sets of challenges. Uh, so what we've tried to do with our center is to think about ethics and policy questions that I think have significance outside of California, but to look at them within a California context. Totally. Um, so last year, all of our programs were focused on the theme of healthcare justice and health access in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a state that has been experimenting, I think, for some time uh, with how to get uh, uh, health care or make health care available to as mm-hmm. large a number of the population as possible. 
Um, it's you know sort of been acting uh, uh, in quite explicit opposition to the federal government with respect to healthcare policy. Uh, this year, uh, all of our programs at the center will focus on the theme of war and the military experience. Uh, California has been really very central in America's conduct of war. Vandenberg, uh, right outside. Many, San many Diego. bases, right? I yeah, mean, you know, as, as somebody joked to me, you know, what is San Diego without the Navy, but, you know, sort of a beach and some taco stands. <laughs> yeah, really nice weather. <laughs> right. So, uh, so we have a very heavy level of, of military presence or military investment. Um, you know, during the First World War, we were uh, serving as kind of a breadbasket for uh, European armies, supplying, you know, wheat and, and, and other kinds of foodstuffs mm-hmm. to the British Army. And then, you know, in the early 20th century, shipbuilding and uh, 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 aerospace took off here. Um, and then, you know, in the post-war period, you know, uh, this was sort of a place where the peace movement had a very strong presence in the sure. 1960s. Oh, wow, yes, yes, and, yes. And uh, we have in California the largest number of... Um, individuals who uh, are either refugees or descendants of refugees from American military conflicts, so persons from Vietnam, Korea, that sort of thing. So it's a place where, uh, though I suppose we don't tend to think of it this way normally, kind of war and military experience is kind of all around us, oh, yeah. right? It's oh, shaped yeah. a lot of our community, shaped who's here, what's I mean, even here. Even all the space stuff, too. That's right. All yeah. the space stuff yeah. is based in military. So who's here and, yeah. and what's here and what industries exist here, uh, down to, you know, Hollywood making, uh, you know, propaganda films. Sure. Or Zero Dark Thirty and all yeah, that stuff. So, yes, right. Yes, yes. So Her uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, you know, it, it very much permeates our, our past and our present. And I think there's interesting questions about, you know, to what extent it's going to have a role in the future. Here. Right. And then one of the things that you mentioned is kind of interesting to me is I, that's what kind of a eclectic spacewalk I want to try and make it because eclectic is a broad and diverse range of philosophies. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the overview effect is looking down at earth from like the ISS or, or the moon, <laughs> yeah. you know? So when you do that, it, you kind of hearken to that in the, the ethics centers in Belgium or right. Indonesia or Jakarta or sure. wherever those places will probably have the most, Kind of standard, if you will, ethics, but then each individual place will have its own culture kind of lens or optics. Yeah, today. issues are uh, vary in how much uh, gravity or relevance they have gravity for different regions of, of the world. Yes. Um, I think that's true. Um, and I think California is just sort of interestingly situated both within the U.S. but also within the larger world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, it's, it's a place that uh, has been, I think, out in front of lots of cultural and political developments in the past. So in a large measure, what we're trying to do with the Ethics and Policy Center is to help students and and help our community uh, think more carefully about those issues, become more informed about them, uh, perhaps contribute as uh, as policymakers or members of their communities in the future. Um, I think, you know, Cal Poly Pomona is a place that that understands that it is situated within, within a region, right? It's a regionally serving university, and that's something it should be very proud of. Um, and, you know, we know that most all of the students who attend there uh, will live, you know, the bulk of the rest of their lives in this region. Sure. not, you know, moving to the other side of the world for the most part, unlike me. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, so, so we're, we're, we're developing, I hope, right, uh, you know, current and future citizens and leaders who will help us, you know, arrive at the best answers to these yeah, kinds of problems. Definitely. Um, but we're in year two. Um, so, you know, I think we've gotten off to a really, a really strong start, but it's something that I think has a really um, bright future. Okay. 
Awesome. Well, we'll put any information in the show notes yeah. so people can uh, look at that as well. So we're going to take a short break, and then okay. we'll be right back in a couple more minutes. And welcome back to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm here again with Michael Chobley. Uh, so we talked to before about your kind of personal journey, your research, uh, kind of broad swaths of philosophy, but now we're going to get in deep. Uh, so we're going to start off first by um, kind of a little segue with you are one of the founding members of the International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying. So it's a global organization of over 200 scholars interested in the investigation of philosophical questions surrounding death and dying, including but not limited to the metaphysics of death, the possibility and the desirability of immortality, death as harm or benefit, and death and life as meaning. Um, a lot of other interesting topics, but maybe uh, start talking to us about that and how you originally got in got into that. A founding member at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, I've been writing and thinking about uh, ethical questions related to self-killing, suicide, since the late 1990s. Um, and uh, when I came to Cal Poly in 2003, uh, a few years into that, I was given the opportunity to teach uh, a course that had been on the curriculum there, in the curriculum there for a while, uh, entitled Confrontations with the Reaper. Uh, so it's a interesting it's a, name. It, yeah, <laughs> a, a well-chosen name. Um, and um, the course is, is a interdisciplinary course uh, on death and dying. The emphasis falls on philosophy, but you tend also to read uh, works in literature, sociology, history, things like that, medicine. Um, but I began to teach that, and I just began to become interested in um, a lot of the issues that are in the philosophy of death and dying literature. Um, and I also just was really taken with um, the depth and sophistication of the conversations you can have with students, in particular, uh, when the subject is death. <laughs> um, I really like teaching that course in large measure because I don't have to do a big sales job to persuade students that there's something at stake in our conversations. Sure. Sometimes in philosophy, you do have to do that. You sort of have to sell students on the idea that you know some philosophical topic or line of inquiry uh, should interest them. Um, but in the case of, of philosophy of death and dying, I don't think you need to sell them on that. They, they know they're mortal. They have probably had a few uh, ideas, a few thoughts, perhaps some of them a bit uncomfortable or unsettling about that fact. So you're dealing, as, as you know, some students like to say, real stuff here. Um, and so I think it's been um, very pleasurable to teach the, the material, but it's also been uh, an important catalyst for for my research. I mean, subsequent to that, you know, I've written a little bit on uh, immortality, uh, desirability of immortality, edited some work on that, uh, thought a bit about um, assisted dying, which originally when I was working on suicide, I hadn't really, that hadn't really been a focus of mine. And then in the last um, about five years or so, I've been thinking very extensively about uh, grief and bereavement, mm -hmm. which um, much to my surprise is not a topic that philosophers have said uh, very much about and not enough in my view. Um, but around about 2014, I was at a conference in South Carolina on philosophy of death and dying and uh, everyone there seemed to think it was a terrific event. And I said, well, you know, we should do this again. Uh, and so the question then became, you know, what kind of um, mechanism would be best for that? And uh, that group, the group you mentioned, the National Association for Philosophy of Death and Dying was a byproduct of that. Mm -hmm. um, but subsequent to that, we've uh, met uh, had three uh, biennial conferences, uh, two in the United States and one in Sweden, and then we'll be meeting next year in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Um, but I think I've also discovered 
that there is a very large uh, contingent of philosophers thinking about these things. Uh, you know, we've had um, 140, 150 different people present at our conferences, last three conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, probably we'll see a whole bunch of new faces two year, uh, year uh, from now in Melbourne. So it's a very vibrant area of philosophical research right now. It's just a kind of a cool area because in some ways it, it's sort of cross-disciplinary, right? You think about... Uh, questions in ethics, questions about well-being and value and things like that, but also, you know, metaphysics, personal identity, uh, various, you know, um, aspects of social ethics. So I've often felt that philosophy of death and dying is a great, um, is a great way to introduce people to philosophy. Absolutely. Right? I, honestly, it's a very, yeah, because it cuts across so many swaths of yeah. problems, uh, situations, et cetera. And uh, I mentioned, I think last time uh, on our, well, the first time I really dealt with death in a real way was um, I thought about, you know, uh, my grandfather passing away and we were all like fishing or something with my cousins. And then I just thought about him, you yeah. know, just not being there. And then it was just like this world crashing kind of <laughs> event with like, I'm like, you know, crying and thinking, th- thinking the uncanny about, discovery yeah, yes. of infinity yes. and all the yeah. things. And so for me is, so my question to you is, is, is this the formation of this group, more events like this? Is it just that people are getting more serious about it or is it always been serious, but then not given a good, as much credence or, well, I mean, if you that? look at, you know, the history of, of philosophy, certainly in the sort of Western Mediterranean mm-hmm. tradition, right? I mean, death has always, has always been, uh, a subject on its agenda. I mean, you think about um, some of the most influential texts, right, in the Western tradition. You know, uh, works by Plato, the Phaedo, and things like that. I mean, they're about they're about death and and what happens to us after death, and and uh, you know what sort of attitude we should take toward it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as I see it, you know, going back to to a theme that we were exploring in the first half of our discussion. Uh, you know, philosophy can be a powerful source of, of understanding and solidarity. And if there's anything that, you know, links us, it's our mortality, yeah. right? It's, it's one of the very few things that is a genuine human universal. So I think we all uh, have to struggle with it a little bit. Um, and that makes it uh, a really uh, fecund area of not only philosophical research, but I think just sort of ordinary philosophical dialogue. Oh, I mean, and, and then even in my lifetime, it's completely changed. I mean, for my lifetime, I'm 31. And like when, you know, you're growing up, there was still this kind of like this kind of hush, hush, yeah. taboo, like whatever. And then People now, are starting to talk more about it. It's oh, exactly. Or more celebrating life in general rather than continuing to like focus on the death of it. When it's like it's a thing, like you said, a human yeah. universal. We all have to yeah. go through it. Well, I think we're seeing the the slow diminishment and I'm not mm-hmm. uh offering people uh, a thought as to whether or not they should think this is good or bad, but a slow diminishment, I think, of a certain kind of narrative around death that has been uh, you know, prevalent in, in the U.S. and other uh, similar countries, the kind of Christian narrative where it's um, focused on uh, you know, dying as the preparation for the afterlife and, and so forth. Right. Um, as you say, I think um, people's relationship to other people's deaths has become more focused on uh, their biographies rather than sort of their their post-mortem uh, mm-hmm. uh, fates. Um, and I suppose that's a indication that there's some decline of belief in the afterlife. Right. Um, I don't have the numbers to back that up, but my suspicion is that um, there's some decline of belief in the afterlife. Um, uh, but, you know, again, it's it's been a subject that philosophers have had to wrestle with because I think, you know, human beings have had to wrestle with it. Um, and even in the case where, you know, there's not much to be done, right? right? I still think it's important for us to arrive at what we think are 
reasonable attitudes toward it, right? So, you know, one of the questions I teach, one of the questions I teach, and and people often teach in philosophy of death and dying courses, is, you know, whether immortality would be a good thing. Right. And that question, I think, is an important question, even if, as a matter of fact, we never, you know, develop technologies that will enable us to be immortal. Um, Because when we ask that question, I think we are backhandedly really kind of asking the question, well, what should we think about things as they are, which is to say, how should we think about our mortality? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You know, should we think that that's, as some people, I suppose, have thought, a, 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 you know, great tragedy, a crisis, you know, the worst feature of human existence? Or should we, on the other hand, perhaps think it's, uh, you know, some people thought it's the best thing of human existence, that it'd be far worse for us to have, you know, very, 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 very long lives. Um, So I think, you know, even when we're not dealing with questions that have kind of decisional importance, right? We're not sort of making a decision. We still um, crave, right? I think some grasp of what we should think or feel about the kind of constituent uh, facts about who we are, Mm -hmm. right? The kinds of creatures that we are, which is not only mortal, but as a number of psychologists have pointed out, perhaps uniquely blessed or cursed in knowing that we're mortal. Absolutely. Right. Right. Uh, You you watch your pets. I sometimes do have that sense. You know, you're, you're lucky, right? You're going to die, but you don't know it. Right. 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 right, right. That that knowledge Uh, of it is that much more the bearer of responsibility, but then even. Yes, that's right. Uh, um, You know, we, we, we share our mortality with other creatures, but we don't share that with them. Um, right. And that's depending again on you know what philosophical uh, positions you're attracted to. That's either a boon or a bane. Right, and and so lots of things to to go off on on from that. But very quickly, then it's very interesting that you mentioned like animals as well, because that is a, a fundamental difference mm-hmm. of not just the consciousness, but even how they deal with death. I was listening to a, a podcast that was talking about anthropomorphism and how in some, a lot of ways it is bad to you know make you know the. Uh, a bear, a teddy bear, et cetera. But then on the other way, uh, on the opposite side, is that um, a lot of animals have a lot of human emotions that we think are uniquely human. For instance, they were talking about a dolphin who literally put a, a dead baby right. on her back for right. 21 days, right. you know, and then an elephant who literally, they will go on walks off the beaten path to then basically rub their uh, nose, their trunks on the skull of like yeah. someone that's in their family. And it's like, that's a, that's crazy. But at the same yeah. time, very interesting. Grieving behaviors seem to be in evidence. Um, I mean, I, I, I share, you know, some of the reservations about too readily uh, foisting upon these uh, animal behaviors, sort of uh, you know, human interpretations human, of what's sure, going sure. on exactly. But it is very striking that, yeah. you know, animals do engage in, uh, in mourning behaviors. Um, I mean, I think that underscores uh, something that uh, um, people in, in uh, animal studies are increasingly grasping, which is that at least some animal communities have very complex communal relations, um, the kinds of relations that, you know, uh, you need to have. Right? And death would be obviously a part of it. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, kinds yeah. of Somewhere. relations such that death would be the sort of thing to elicit this kind of you know, mourning behavior from elephants and dolphins and chimpanzees sure. and other creatures. So uh, whether they're grieving, I, I, I'm not oh, in a sure. position to say, uh, but I, I'm open to the possibility. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. And then, um, so moving on to that from that is, I mean, different cultures have uh, associated different values and had different markers over time, like really with, with dealing with death. Um, strikingly for me is like, Say, for instance, like the Vikings, you know, mm-hmm. how they would, you know, basically do a funeral pyre or something. Um, 
also the the ancient Romans putting the you know th- the the toll for the boatman. Um, Asian cultures maybe doing more of a more of a family esque kind of generational back you know kind of ge- descent generations and generations. So how is our kind of um, culture? Is is it really dependent on the culture how we see it, or has there been you know some specific lines of thinking about death that have been apparent for yeah. you know, time immemorial. Yeah, my business card says professor of philosophy, but invariably I think philosophy bleeds into other fields. Um, and in the case of death and dying, it definitely bleeds into anthropology. Yeah. Um, and I think the consensus among people who who study death and dying from the standpoint of kind of the empirical social sciences, anthropology, psychology, and so on, is that. American culture, U.S. culture, is maybe uniquely ill-suited to deal with death and dying in certain ways, Um, at least culture as it is at present, Um, in part because we're perhaps in a a transition phase, right? The sort of traditional belief in the afterlife and uh, sort of eternal salvation, damnation seems to be receding. Um, that, you know, was was really very standard, right, in the United States up until maybe the early to mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time that that's receding, uh, it's not clear what set of cultural norms and expectations and mores are coming into that vacuum, coming yep. into its stead. Yep. Um, you know, and, and some of the things that tend to characterize U.S. culture um, make, I think, uh, people's relationship to death and, and by extension grieving, maybe a little bit more fraught. Um, you know, uh, I'm far from the first to say, you know, we're a somewhat more individualistic culture, Absolutely, more yeah. uh, achievement oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we work more uh, than, than many other uh, comparable cultures do. So for us, I think, you know, mortality and death feel worse Right. It's it's the end of you as as uh, competent, economically productive, autonomous uh, adult. The rugged individual. Um, yeah. The rugged individualism. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Death is a pretty big insult to the rugged individualist. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think we're we in the United States are particularly uh, challenged by mortality and death and dying. Um, I think things are, are subtly and slowly changing. Uh, one of my colleagues at Cal Poly in uh, the Department of Sociology, Jack Fong, has written a very interesting book about the phenomenon of death cafes, which are these kind of uh, uh, meeting places or, or sort of meetups, I guess you could say, where people come together to talk about, you know, questions or concerns they have about about death and dying. Oh wow! Um, and it's it, as a movement, it's really exploded. I know that there's hundreds of these, you know, death cafe groups or locations throughout the world. And quite a large number in in the United States, and several large ones here in California. But I take that to be a sign that there is again a, a real thirst for thinking about this. Um, I think the fact that we we die differently and have a different kind of lifespan than people had, say, you know, fifty to hundred years ago, right. also plays into this. Um, we die slower <laughs> than right. we did in the past. We, we die of, of more frequently now of, of chronic diseases. Um, People know that death is coming by and large in our culture. Right, right, you know? right. Um, whereas, you know, when when the predominant killers, as they were around 1900, are, are things like, you know, infectious disease and sudden injury and so forth, you know, you die quickly and you can die almost at any time, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. pretty rare, right, for, for Americans in the early 21st century, you know, to die in their 20s, in their 30s, right? Whereas... 
you know, that wasn't so unusual, right. uh, you know, a, a century or a century and a half ago. And uh, I often blow my students' minds when I when I show them, you know, mortality statistics about, uh, you know, now versus uh, a century ago. I mean, the biggest killer for uh, women, you know, well into the early 20th century was, was childbirth and the right. after effects of childbirth. Well, and But then, so. not to cut you, but, or to interject, yeah. but isn't so, so interesting though now, depending on your cultural policies, which then are then effectively made through politics, then you have what we have now is we're the, basically, we have the worst uh, child mortality rate in any of the developed country for, you know, in America. Yeah. And it's like, how, what? What? Like you were just saying, yeah, we had this giant that's thing. A, that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole different sort of tragedy. No, totally, right? totally. But on the other end, right, I mean, you know, we, we, we have what I think many people would say are not very good uh, not very good record of outcomes with respect to end-of-life care. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, no. We spend a great deal of money on end-of-life mm-hmm. care compared to comparable countries. And uh, I definitely think that, that uh, medical institutions and policymakers and ordinary people are kind of wrestling with that question of how to die well now that dying is more prolonged, mm-hmm. um, more predictable mm-hmm. in some sense. Um, I mean, in a way, right, knowing as, as uh, you know, as people would have, say, four or five generations ago, that death could come at any time made people more ready. Right, <laughs> I know right, that sounds right, strange, right. but, no, no, no. you know, when, it, when it's a more kind of pervasive, you know, I don't want to say random, but almost, you know, uh, uh, cruel uh, uh, foe that can sort of show up at your doorstep any time, I think that made people um, more ready, in part because they, they, they really couldn't procrastinate. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I think people can procrastinate. Death is at your thinking, door, as they yeah, say. <laughs> you know, I think people nowadays, you know, with, with people dying of diseases like cancer and dementia, you know, that have long uh, uh, periods of decline associated with them, people can procrastinate, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of thinking about their mortality for, well, a very long time. I think almost till the very end, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. No, that's, and, but you bring up a good point uh, going about kind of that rugged individualism, um, because I think that is maybe one of the big drivers of this kind of new techno optimism or techno UP, utopia with like, um, with these people called like uh, transhumanists, right? Mm-hmm. Transhumanists. So one of my only thing with like immortality is like uh, some like cell biologists and, and people like that, like Aubrey de Grey comes out and there's a, a documentary called The Immortalist. This is the yeah. only play, the only thing that I have. But basically the, the idea is that there's only seven ways that a cell dies mm-hmm. and that basically yeah. it only dies because of just it's been alive but yeah. it's because it keeps dividing and dividing. So back to biology class. But yeah. at the end of that, Apparently, if we were to do good enough in science or technology to eliminate those, then we could theoretically, theoretically have a long, much, much longer yeah. lifetime. So, what, I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on, on some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are people, uh, you know, other philosophies, some philosophers sometimes classify me as, as, as John Fisher at UC Riverside says, as, as an immortality curmudgeon, someone who's not in favor of it. Um, in reality, I think my position, it's a little hard to know how to, how to describe it or pin it down. I mean, I think that mortality is so fundamental to human existence as we know it and the ways in which we live and the ways in which we relate to one another and the ways in which we try to craft lives or biographies for ourselves that I, I almost view the, the sort of the phrase immortal human as something of a non sequitur. Yeah. Right. The choice yeah. between the way we are now, which is to say mortal and being immortal is not a choice as I see it between 
human mortality and human immortality. It's more like a decision to be a different sort of species. Right, 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 right. And in some ways, I think that the questions that arise for us about the desirability of, of immortality, um, they can become um, confusing quickly, in part because I think sometimes we're asking the question, could creatures kind of like us mm. have good immortal lives? Which I take to be an importantly different question from, could you or I, right. shaped as we have been under the understanding of our being mortal and with relationships that assume mortality and so forth, could we have good immortal lives? I think I'm skeptical about the second question, uh, having a, 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 a yes answer, but I don't take my answer to say much about the first question. Right. Right. That, you know, we could create creatures that come into the world knowing that they, you know, will live forever. Um, uh, I'm not sure I would recognize them as my peers um, because I think it's bound up with so many aspects of the human condition, the kinds of relationships we want to form, our motivations for forming those relationships, how we relate to time, how we relate to the past, how we, you know, the ways in which we form our, our say, family organization. Are you saying that death gives life meaning? Are you, is that what you're saying? Um, I would say that, I would say that it, I'm not sure if it gives meaning. Right. Uh, I, I, I have some sympathy with that, but I would say it, it, it's a constitutive fact about us. Right. Totally. Right. It's, it's not this sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of contingent, uh, uh, feature of our, of our condition, you know, like the clothes that we wear, the language that we happen to speak. I mean, again, it's a kind of universal feature, but also I think a feature that is very deeply, um, stitched in, sure. right, to all sorts of human practices, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm not being particularly original here. The, the people who uh, espouse what's now known as terror management theory, right, say that, you know, almost all of human culture can be viewed in some sense as an attempt to engage with the fact of our mortality. Yes, I have you heard know, this. Uh, yes, you know, yes, religion yes. And, and, you know, art mm -hmm. and these other sorts of things. Uh, I, I'm not sure I, I think that that thesis is true when stated so, so universally or so broadly, but I think there's something to it, right, yeah. that um, almost all of the kind of gross... Uh, features of the human condition have something to do with our knowing, right. right? That our time is limited, right? And then, and with that, I think, man, because that that is such a fundamental thing that. E but each person, you kind of get into this again theory of mind, the subjectivity of mm -hmm. each individual's, you know, existence, if yeah. you will. And then you're sitting here and you're like, well, for me personally, I had to kind of just get to that point. And then once you do, it is really a weight off your shoulders. In my, my mind, psychologically and thinking yeah. about death, um, it, when I was younger, it was more of a thing. I look, I didn't want to die. It was such, you know, this, this bad thing, et cetera. And then now it's way more of a kind of walking hand in hand. Obviously you want to extend your life as much as possible. You want to extend meaningful yeah. life as much as possible. But at the same time, like you, you got to deal with that. You got to yeah. you got to get over that real quickly. You know. <laughs> I mean, I think our mortality, um, you know, probably the best ways of dealing with it do nevertheless put us on a kind of attitudinal tightrope, right? As you say, most of us want to live a lot, right? right. <laughs> yeah. you know, we want long pretty long lives, maybe not as long as possible. But oh yeah, yeah. Certainly, it's a very certainly point. we very we, point. we generally prefer more to less. Um, you know, we want uh, to have good quality of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think at a certain point we realize, as you know, the Epicureans pointed out to us, whatever, 2,000 odd years ago now, that fear of death and anxiety around, around death can be uh, bad for, for life, right? right. It's, it's a good yes, way to yes. make your life pretty miserable is to be 
preoccupied, even unknowingly, with you know uh, your own mortality. So we don't want to be, um, I think, gripped by the fear of death. But on the other hand, the the antidote to that is not denial or ignorance, right? It's it's got to be living, acting, etc., in full knowledge, in full awareness of our mortality, but without again sort of letting those aspects of it that tend to make. Uh, life um, more of a struggle take over that's right? totally right um, and so that I think is a real tightrope right how do we how do we live mindful of our mortality but not gripped by it yeah and and I think that goes into the future of work though in your social kind of theory because it, <laughs> yeah. it literally that the whole question of like when AI and automation take away all the jobs and then work has been such a fundamental thing to like especially the west if you will right um Move, you know, throughout history, it's like, well, do we want to have, like, it's a different one or two questions. One is, do you want to live ha- a longer life? But that is not the same question of, do you want to live the sa- uh, a longer life when you were, say, 30? Or when you were, like, when you're, it's because what people think of is, like, extending life. They think of, well, when I'm 90 or something, then I'll get, like, some more years on the back end and it's like, eh, I don't know if I want that. Right, but mathematics is complicated, right? So, like, (laughs) one picture you know, that could happen with life extension is, is the one you're describing, right? Yeah. Where sort of what we think of now as, as old age, senescence, is extended for, you for know, however hundreds long. or thousands of years, which, you know, I, I tend to think we actually underestimate uh, how good a stage of life old age is. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, that's not, I think, what most people are hoping for. The I think what most people are sort of hoping for is that kind of the big part in the middle. Mm, last yes. longer. Yes, um, yes, yes. Though I also think there's, you know, something to be said for wanting your childhood to last a long time. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, you know, Even I, longer now. I, I've, I've done this exercise with students a few times, you know, when we've talked about life extension and immortality, sort of saying, you know, suppose that you live 10,000 years, right? You know, how would you want to divide it up, right? Give me yes, how, yes. how many years of childhood would you want? How many right. years, how many years of like adolescence or early adult, you know, how many years uh-huh. of like, you know, what we think of as sort of early adulthood, middle age, and how much would you want, right? And of course, you know, what most people tend to think of is immediately is kind of like they want the middle part to be really big, but I don't think it's patently obvious that that would be the best. Right, right, right. A little be. bit more spectrum. Uh, <laughs> well, childhood. I mean, you know, I we know that, 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 you know, old age, senescence, I think this surprises a lot of younger people, but the psychology uh, studies tell us that it's often the happiest phase of life. Oh, you know, yes. Um, and of course, many people look back on childhood as, as a warm, fuzzy phase of life. Not everyone, of course, but, you know, at least some people do. Um, I often find it very strange that, you know, the part of life that most, you know, empirical studies tell us people find the least satisfying is the part that people want to last the longest. Right. And it's like, well, but, but don't you think that that's kind of an interesting kind of enigma wrapped in a paradox? Because it's like, it's, those are your most transformative, if you will, years. Uh, maybe, maybe so. Like the, people think, at least, or do you think it's really a psychological that they almost are are predisposed to think that that's well, you your mentioned, happy you time. Know, I've been doing some some work on on work on labor. I yes, think part of it is that so much of the way we think of of the human lifespan in countries like the United States is kind of oriented around that middle phase when people are working, right? So childhood is development for work. And then notice how we think of old age now as retirement, right? From work. Which which, is sort of anchoring, you know, retirement against the work phase, (laughs) right? It's not a phase of of interest on its own, right? It's sort of, you know, defining after the thing you (laughs) were doing, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is this picture of human beings and, and sort of what matters in life is productivity or something like that, which, 
I mean, I think that that's wrongheaded in the end. Yeah. So I think that that goes into maybe how we think about what we would want out of a long life. Right. So moving on from death to a, not moving on, I guess you could say a cousin. You can't move on. Yeah, you can't move on from death. But uh, a real big part of your research um, is, is suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to kind of give a uh, broad uh, brief thing is uh, that's something that I kind of dealt with um, in, in high school and college and stuff is, is not particularly like um, emotional type of things, but things of like just not knowing everything. You know, I think it's more of that like Nietzsche thing of just dealing with the ex- existentialism and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that everyone I think has to deal with. And, and I think harkens to the death conversation, but suicide mm-hmm. that takes it a little bit yeah. more closer. And then if we were talking about death being taboo, suicide is, even more taboo. So, I mean, just yeah. talk about kind of your well, research. Well, I think you know, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things I notice about my research is, uh, you know, I, I tend to be a fairly practically oriented philosopher, and I think that a lot of things I'm writing about or have written about are uh, subjects where I think our cultures are kind of in transition or sort of at inflection points. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, you know, there is, I think, uh, a longstanding taboo around suicide in, in our culture and in many cultures, uh, I think that there is, uh, at the same time, right, that that taboo sticks around a bit, there is, I think, a growing awareness of, you know, issues around mental illness and stress and anxiety and the things that tend to be associated with. Or with work, like you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I think we're at a stage where uh, we are increasingly ready, I think, to have a more uh, sophisticated, and I guess I would say mature attitude toward the phenomenon of mm-hmm. suicide. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I think, you know, I tend to think that most suicides are very unfortunate, uh, um, but that doesn't necessarily entail that uh, we should um, subject suicide to some kind of moral or religious taboo. That may be yes. exactly the wrong way to look at mm-hmm. it. Um, so I think we're at a point where we're collectively sort of rethinking our attitudes surrounding suicidal thinking surrounding suicidal ideation mm-hmm. um, probably for the better um, I'm hoping that some of the some of the stigma is lifted but I actually think that one of the uh, silver linings of that stigma being lifted is I think it's going to make suicide uh, rarer right? right I mean one of the right. things that I think is is clear from the literature in in psychiatry psychology and so on is that you know talking about suicide acknowledging that people have suicidal thinking sometimes um, doesn't encourage it Right. No, it doesn't. Um, yeah. You know, what it seems to do rather is to uh, help people work it through. And most people's, uh, when they, you know, when they, you know, when they're attracted to suicide, they're not attracted to it um, in a way that's particularly durable, right? You know, right. It's, a, it's often a kind it's more of finality kind uh, of deal. Well, a kind of fleeting thought, you know, oh, okay. an impulse that doesn't last for, you know, days, weeks, years, et cetera. You know, I see. It doesn't say, not to say there aren't, you know, recurrent um, suicide episodes in some people's lives, but. You know, it's it's a somewhat transient uh, impulse, mm-hmm. um, and I think that acknowledging suicidal thinking um, is actually a very powerful suicidal suicide prevention technique. All right. Um, it doesn't seem to me that the taboo has done much good on that score. And the, so, <laughs> right, right, right. And, but but don't you think though it's almost like a legitimacy of is that like I kind of see it in all in in other ways is that the medically assisted kind of because there's two types of suicide that you kind yeah. of have have mentioned in your research is you have the uh, medically assisted suicide which is more currently called like euthanasia um, if you will broadly and then run of the mill suicide where someone you know takes their own life by whichever means uh, they see fit so in that kind of way it's the euthanasia part 
of the medically kind of assistedness and then our dealing with grief or something has almost pushed us to deal with it because we don't want other people suffering or it seems that most people don't want other people to suffer even if it is you're about to die right and i think that um you know the the assisted dying movement even though this was not necessarily one of its its goals i think one of the things that it has done is to, to use the language you were using i think it has legitimized um Suicidal thinking, and by legitimized, mm-hmm. I don't mean necessarily endorsed, but no, sort no, no. of brought out into the open, brought to the forefront yes. that people, you know, do right think about this. Lots of people do. We we know from all of the literature and psychology that lots of people have mm-hmm. occasional, you know, thoughts about suicide. Um, but I think it's done a lot to domesticate, right, to make familiar the idea that people could have well. Things that look like reasons for wanting their lives yes, to be short. Good point. Good point. You know, um, they're not necessarily, um, uh, you know, mad or or fanatical or uh, you know immature or cowardly or any of these other things that I think people have traditionally said about about suicide. So I think that that movement has done a lot to um, open up the discussion. Right. Um, uh, there are, of course, people who who support uh, the right to assisted dying for the terminally ill, but are also, but at the same time, are very um, antagonistic toward you know run of the mill suicide, as I've called it. Um, but again, I think it's done a, uh, assisted dying as a social movement has done a lot to open up a wider conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there is that that phrase, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and I think that that is true in the case of suicide. We know that sometimes just getting people to talk about it and acknowledge it tends to um, tends to do a lot just to sort of help people through those times. Yep. Um, and I think that there is a, you know, again, the assisted dying movement has reminded us of something philosophically substantial that I think we all know, but we tend not to notice, which is that suicide has always been in our power. Oh, no. Totally. And, and I think that, yeah, <laughs> Which is, it, it's it's always is. Yeah. Right. Well, um, I mean, that's how my kind of journey started was when I was in, in middle school, high school, I was more thinking of those thoughts. But then I, I just kind of mentioned it to my parents and we, you know, once and, and they immediately like guidance counselor, et cetera. And the, but Mrs. Robinson, the guidance counselor at my high school was like you said, like was totally, didn't think it was a weird thing. You know what I mean? Like, okay, this is totally normal. And then just asked me questions and just got me to talk yeah. about it. And then just from talking about it, it's like, Oh, well, I just had a bunch of right. pent up energy about this. Yeah, I think therapeutically or, or sort of from a public health point of view, the, the best strategies are those that take suicide seriously without panicking. Mm, very good point. Yes. Right. yes. Um, and I think that there tends to be a kind of panicky reaction, particularly among, you know, those who are close to adolescents and young people. Mm-hmm. And we know that lots of adolescents, you know, have this thought, right? Um, and only a very tiny fraction, thank goodness, mm-hmm. act on it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's okay. Um, but I think there's a, you know, uh, you know, I think we were mentioning, uh, it was Nietzsche a while back, you know, I think there's a sort of important, uh, you know, existentialist, uh, principle, right. That, you know, we're kind of rediscovering in our culture, which is, you know, mortality is a fact about us, but it's also one over which we have a little bit of power. Oh. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, um, a very unsettling feature of suicide to a lot of people. I think that, that that's part of what makes uh, a lot of people anxious about talking about um, the ethics and politics of suicide is that it reminds us that we have this power and a lot of people will kind of prefer that that not be so. Right. Right, 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 right. Because <laughs> then, the, the... then there's no question. <laughs> that is true. So, oh, I mean, and then again, to, to think about it, uh, one, one kind of one, another dimension is just kind of like, 
um, in euthanasia or assisted suicide, it seems like it's more medically with people around you, communal. I mean, obviously, maybe the final act is not. But like – because what I'm thinking of is like in, in Japan, they have the suicide forest, which is like right. a very – you know somber kind of very lonely each individual goes in there yeah. by themselves and then that and then you don't have anything you know mm-hmm. to tell you no and the, and it just yeah. seems like there there's very many ways to look at it you know and very many ways right. how people deal with it right um well we know you know i mean i think it's it's often worth keeping in mind and i, and I like to under, underscore this when i'm teaching this issue to students is that we know that that medical personnel have been involved in helping people die for a very long time, right? Oh, D-Day, like you said. I mean, your, your father. Sure. Well, right. I mean, we, we right. I mean, we know that everyone. you know many many physicians in the military uh, acknowledge doing this, uh, but you know, uh, you know, the anthropological evidence suggests that you know oh, many cultures okay. throughout the world sure. have sure. have been helping people to die um, for quite a long time, and it's only been you know I would say in the last maybe century or two where you've had this very sort of. Uh, strong, you know, cultural proscription mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. suicide that extended to the medical profession. But I like to emphasize to students, you know, that we, you know, based on surveys of doctors and so on here in the United States, you know, something like one in 50, one in 40 will admit, right, that they have uh, helped a patient die. And that's probably, a, you know, an underestimate, right? Right, right. So our choices, you know, as a society are not, right, no assisted dying, because that's not the status quo, versus legalized assisted dying. It's, you know, illegal assisted dying yes, yes, versus yes. legalized assisted <laughs> dying. And I think that tends to change the conversation and how people feel about it. Oh, totally. And, and like you said, though, but in like all philosophy, almost, it seems like the language is so key to just parse out. Yeah, exactly and just dealing in, in, you know, rudimentary uh, 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 fact, right? Um, uh, you know, I think... A potent question uh, for me or a potent question that has has been very effective in engaging students around this issue is just to say, you know, if you had an aged relative, an ill-aged relative, would you prefer, if that person were trying to uh, shorten their lives, would you prefer that it be legally available to them or that they have to perform a criminal act to do it? (laughs) Right. And it's like, when you put it that way, way, (laughs) uh, I think people's people's, uh, sentiments, right, who are hostile to legalized assisted dying. Move it moves the needle a little bit, right? And then so so moving on that from that uh, from suicide and death, it, it kind of gets into ethics. And you wrote a book um, recent, your most recent book in 2016 called "Understanding Kant's Ethics." And um, you know, w- with this, like we were talking about Nietzsche saying, yeah. you know, the death of God, etc. And it created a problem, a little bit of a problem for moral philosophy because if religion wasn't the foundation that gave our moral beliefs mm-hmm. their validity. Uh, what other foundation could it be? And if there's no God and therefore no guarantee of cosmic justice, ensuring the good guys are rewarded and the bad guys are punished, then why should anyone bother trying to be good? And so it's like, you know, kind of that utilitarianism uh, mm-hmm. versus, you know, so talk briefly uh, about kind of what yeah. Kant kind of was dealing with, with, with that. And I mean, he's yeah. the, the most famous, you know, philosopher for his critique of moral reasoning and yeah. starting this whole. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Kant was himself a theist, but his ethics are uh, fairly unrelenting in being secular, right? Um, You know, the answer, I think, to the question, you know, sort of what is morality's origin or its source for Kant is, well, you and me. Um, You know, at least the way I represent Kant's views, he's someone who uh, believed that the fact that we are choosers, you know, rational agents, that we can make choices is the uh, central moral fact about us. Mm. And um, 
because of that fact, right, uh, we are required to treat ourselves and to treat other rational choosers in a certain sort of way. Uh, nowadays, I and others tend to cash that out by saying that rational choosers are entitled to a certain measure of respect, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a very powerful idea that's had a that's, lot of influence uh, yeah. on our culture. Yep, yep. Um, uh, you know, it's obviously had a role backpedaling a little bit to, you know, the assisted dying discussion, the thought that, you know, a rational chooser has the right to decide, you know, the duration of his life or the circumstances of his death, if you will. Yep. Um, he was no existentialist, right? But there is a sort of, uh, I think, intellectual lineage that stretches from Kant to the existentialist, just in the sense that, you know, both of them, uh, both of those uh, schools of thought, you know, were, were quite convinced of, of the thesis that the source of ethics is us. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And, and the idea that there, there could ever have been um, a kind of uh, source of ethics outside of, of human choice and agency, as Kant would put it, a, a heteronomous mm. source of ethics, um, is just confused. Um, right. So I think of Kant as, you know, in many respects, the great spokesperson for this idea that, that each of us simply by uh, virtue, not of, you know, our, our, our race, our gender, our intelligence, our, our social status, but just by virtue of the fact that we choose an act, are entitled to a certain kind of uh, uh, moral standing, right? A kind of respect. And I think that's a, that's a very beautiful idea. Yeah. Right. And it's one that I've been trying to articulate and defend in different ways. Well, and, and then from that, though, like the beautiful... It's so funny because you it's it's really just seeing an optics or a lens of the utility of a certain thing rather than mm -hmm. its appearance or anything mm -hmm. like that. And then moving moving from that like to grief, <laughs> I, I mean that that's such a you can see grief as like this war this terrible thing and 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 here I'm going to quote you on, on this uh, from from one of your things on three by four magazine. Yeah, the yeah. stranger, the saint, and grief's goodness. It's it's a great quote. That we are drawn to aesthetic experiences involving emotional states that are otherwise painful or distressing cries out for explanation, and philosophers have proposed a number of solutions to this paradox. Yet there is another instance where we are drawn to emotionally painful experiences that has received far less philosophical attention and arguably poses even harder puzzles than the paradox of tragedy. The grief we typically feel upon the deaths of those we care about, depend on, or admire. So beautifully written but like there's something to be said even in the worst cases you have some yeah. a nugget to to do uh, and even in the best <laughs> yeah. you have to have that contrarian like you said yeah. uh you know mindset to to not go full hog into yeah. optimism etc well as I, as I mentioned a while back i, I think grief it, it very much surprised me when i first started looking at this topic as a philosopher because um you know, it's got a little bit of attention here and there in the history of philosophy, mm -hmm. but it's not been, you know, central, right, you know, within the history of philosophy. You can look through the works of, you know, many historically prominent influential philosophers and, and see not a word written about grief. Right. Um, but that very much surprised me because here you have, again, you know, a kind of, uh, I would say, near universal of the human condition, uh, something that causes people distress, anxiety, etc. cetera. Uh, surely philosophers should you know, have something useful to say about this, sure. something insightful to say about this. And, you know, so much to my surprise, um, they hadn't said much very systematic, you know, a little here, a little there. So um, the book that I'm working on, uh, which I anticipate should be published um, between maybe 12 and 18 months from mm -hmm. now, um, will be sort of the first attempt that I'm aware of by a philosopher to kind of have a systematic philosophical account of grief. And the central problem that the book addresses is the problem that you were uh, referencing in that quotation. And here you have an experience that is, I think even when grief goes well, fairly emotionally harrowing for people, you know, mm -hmm. distressing for people. Mm -hmm. 
And yet, I think most of us understand or appreciate that this is not a feature of the human existence that we should want to get rid of. Yes. Right? And that's weird. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if I just sort it's of... a fundamental just, thing. If I just described <laughs> grief, right? You know, you imagine sort of the alien species, you know, landing on Earth and, I, and, they, and they say, hey, we've heard about this grief thing. You know, mm-hmm. what is that? Well, if I just describe it to them... You know, I think their reaction is likely to be, you know, and people think they should do that. Yeah, you're getting or, less of that, design. right? You're you trying know, to do right. that. I mean, what, you know, so you've got this this set of, of emotions and, you know, affective states that in ordinary life, <clears throat> we don't think are good. We right. try to avoid them. We think that something has gone wrong if we're experiencing these things. And yet in the case of grief, I think not merely do we suppose that we sort of have to uh, put up with it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think we tend to suppose that there's something substantial or significant about it as a kind of life experience such that we wouldn't think human lives were better. Right. right if the grief was extracted out of them. Right. right we think right, there's something right. worse. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, the question is, well, what is that? Right? <laughs> you know, what 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 is it that grief um, provides us or why should we think it's it's a worthwhile or can be a worthwhile experience? Despite, you know, sort of on its surface looking quite terrible um you know i I was recently writing about um um the grief of c.s lewis right the christian the christian uh writer known for the the chronicles and narnia books to most but you know he wrote this uh this memoir grief observed uh which was not published during his lifetime under his own name it was only published under a pseudonym um, interestingly but you know you read this book by you know Man of reason, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis, right? You know, <laughs> dapper, you know, Oxford. Do- and you read this memoir where, you know, I think he's being relatively unguarded. This guy is seriously troubled, you know, almost like I think some people say cracking up, you know, over his wife's death. And, you know, you read this and still your reaction is, I don't think it, this, this experience is one that I would wish on people, generally speaking, but it's important for him to have it. And so yes, for yes. me, the philosophical question or problem that I'm trying to address, I think, throughout much of my work, work on grief is, well, how come? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's the, you know, what's the purpose or point or what's the good of it? Um, you know, another sort of illustration of this is, is uh, you know, from Camus, right? Uh, in the novel, The Stranger. Yes. Yes. You know, Merceau is this sort of character who, who can't grieve. And I think most of us, our reaction to Merceau, you know, maybe we kind of admire when we're in our kind of... Uh, know, leather jacket existentialist mode, you know, uh-huh. here's this kind of independent uh, figure who, you know, yeah. is it sort of uh, floats above it all. Mm-hmm. But I think when we really look at him, we pity him. Yeah. Right. Because he can't grieve because he doesn't have the kinds of connections to other people that are preconditions of grieving. Yeah. Uh, and that seems not to be a welcome feature of, of, of Merceau's life, but a, a, a great um Detriment. Yeah, and then, and then when you said and you kind of brought in Saint Augustine too, yeah. and that the stranger, the saint, and the grief's good. And so we'll we'll kind of end with this quotation that you in, you ended it on, which is another splendid thing: is when others die, we are brought face to face with the chilling reality that, as Ernest Becker put it, each of us quote is a small trembling animal who will someday <laughs> decay and die. But so long as we survive, the grief that others deaths. Produce need not be seen as an unmitigated bad. Despite being haunted by his grief, Augustine and us and everyone else is at least able to be invested in another such that another or in another such that another's death can be counted as a loss to him. Yeah. Like him, we ought to take grief as an opportunity afforded to socially interdependent, practically committed beings like ourselves. So. Yeah. Beautiful that, you know, again, someone's death is almost a lost potentiality of me, 
or what yeah. my life and experience could be because yeah. they have not continued as, as such. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we fashion, we build lives for ourselves where um, certain things are, you know, sort of taken for granted. Right. right. And one of them is people. Right. And, you know, we yes. we we build our, our sort of expectations about what our lives will look like and how they'll unfold around those other people. You know, we know, right, that their mm-hmm. existences are contingent, just as we know that our existences are contingent. But I think that um, a lot of what people experience in grief is, of course, sadness at the loss of this particular person. But they also, I think, feel a deep sense of disorientation. Yes. Right. That, you know, as I put it a couple of times in things I've written, I think people. Grief feels as much uh, like a loss of self as a loss to self, right? It sort of feels like the world has been in, in some way upended for you. Yeah, um, your point. And um, I think that that says something about uh, the kinds of creatures you, uh, we have to be or the kinds of creatures that we are um, such that, you know, we can grieve, mm-hmm. right? We don't just have relationships with others where you know we're they're, they're purely transactional right you know where yeah. we get x from them and they get y from us i think we invest in them right yeah. and we become emotionally and psychologically invested in them and we again sort of build our self-conception or self-understanding around them and when they die that self-conception has to change somehow yeah. right it can't continue just as it did before no that's totally right. um, and i think the challenge of grief is to figure out you know, to put it in a kind of cliche way, but the way that's never less insightful, I think the challenge is to figure out how to go on. Yeah. And I, I th- <laughs> my personal anecdote with that is I actually was very fortunate, again, like very fortunate of who it was and the family and how it all happened. But I actually lost one of my good friends, Jay Carousel, um, Jay Carousel, excuse me, a sophomore year of high or college from, he came up from Hurricane Katrina, was a part of our friends group and he passed away in a, in a car accident. But at his funeral in New Orleans, his dad took us into a room, us eight individuals, I guess you could say guys, and he played us Don Henley's in a New York minute. And he was just like, look, you know, you guys love Jay, you know, Jay. And yeah. so that grief was not, and it, it, and it changed my aspect of death. And, and from literally that point on was it was a celebration of life. Mm-hmm. It was not a, a sitting there being, you know, mad or sad that you're never going to experience that thing with that person yeah. again. But that's yeah. the importance of you having to do it now yeah. then in the present. And like you said, yeah. keep going on. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Becker quote that, that I referenced from what you read a moment ago. I mean, sure. We all are these small trembling animals. Here's the thing. I am that small <laughs> yeah, trembling animal. And we I are here. <laughs> well, but, you know, and I'm the only small trembling animal I'm ever going to be or have. Yes. Yes. You know? And so, yes. you know, my, my choice is not, I think, to uh, uh, to deny that I am the small trembling animal, animal, but also not to try to uh, act as if I'm something that I'm not. No, no. Uh, but to be the to be you know the best uh, happiest you know uh, most virtuous small trembling animal that you can be. <laughs> um, because I don't think that we have any other choice in the matter. No, we don't. So, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. And honestly, that's been kind of my, my personal journey too. Well, okay. This is the last question sure. is the last. So if you're that trembling, insightful, but <laughs> but uh, endearing animal. And say you again, eclectic spacewalk. So think about um, kind of you're at the International Space Station or at the Moon, yeah. And you're seeing the Earth, and everyone's looking up at you. 
Um, what do you say or, or what what do you do? Do you because I've gotten many. It's an interesting response about what people yeah. would do uh, when the world when the eyes of the world are on you. What would you have to say to them? Because you are a trembling animal, yeah. but at the same time, you are a trembling animal. You know. Um, well, I think yeah. You know, again, you know, be the best small trembling animal you can be <laughs> and make the most of that. But I, I think you know, sort of the underlying message of of a lot of of uh, you know my work is sort of a, it's a strange combination, you know, sort of that we're both, I think, deeply noble beings, mm. you know, but at the same time, deeply vulnerable beings. Mm, and uh, much of the, the challenge of, of human life, which I hope philosophy can help us, you know, grapple with and figure out as to how to be both of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, not sort of embrace one at the expense of the other. Um, and, you know, that... Uh, those who are down on earth ashamed or worried about the vulnerable part don't have to feel worry or shame. Those who are anxious about the noble part, uh, they don't need to feel worry or shame right. either. Those are sort of the coexistent features of, of the strange human, uh, you know, uh, creatures that we are. And, and we live best when we, when we live with both of those things. Yeah. We're, we're, we're walking that tightrope, as you yeah. said. Yeah. Both yeah, of okay. them together. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, being noble and being vulnerable <laughs> with Michael Tolby. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll put all the show notes and links and stuff uh, where you can find Michael's work and then, uh, yeah, send him best wishes um, for when he <laughs> goes off the pond to yeah. across the Atlantic. So thanks for joining us sure. on conversation. No problem. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.